Tiki Hut Media. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Hey there, welcome and thank you for tuning in to Soul Ramblings today. If you would be so kind as to subscribe and leave a message or a rating, it would help me increase our audience. So I'd really appreciate it. Today, I'm drinking Yingling. This is a version of Yingling that Beth and I discovered. We saw it advertised some time ago. It's Yingling's Hershey's Chocolate Porter, and it's a seasonal beer for them. And we finally found it. Actually, Beth ran across it by accident. She saw a display in a store that she had gone into, picked it up immediately because she knew that I really, really wanted to try this out. Yingling Hershey's Chocolate Porter. I went into it with a pretty excited attitude once I first heard about it, and now am able to find it. <laughs> the color is a real nice, deep, dark, and interesting, although it is a little bit overcarbonated from the get-go. The smell is real nice. It's not an overbearing chocolate scent to it. The taste was good because of the porter base, and you have that chocolate aftertaste, so it was, it was pretty good body is great it's silky smooth it's easy to sip if you're looking for a beer to chug this is definitely not the one to get <laughs> but overall i'm impressed and even though this is no replacement for a traditional lager if i see it again if beth runs across it again we'll probably revisit it it's good stuff it's yingling's hershey's chocolate porter if you can find it give it a try So I read an article this last week about America's uptick in partisanship, and that really didn't surprise me. While it shouldn't surprise anyone that we are more partisan than ever, there seems to be a different type of partisanship. Now, when I grew up, political partisanship was a pride in your team. You were a proud Republican or a proud Democrat. Now it's more of a negative partisanship upside down partisanship. So you find conservatives that don't like and don't really believe in the Republican Party, but they really, really hate Democrats. And you have Democrats who aren't in love with their party either or their leaders, but they just loathe the Republicans. It's more of an anti-partisanship than traditional partisanship. And if you look around, it comes through loud and clear. It's all so negative. The Republicans cannot tell you what they are for, but they sure know what they are against. They can only be that way for so long and continue to attract new voters. Even then, the types of people they attract are probably not going to be the types that they're going to want long term. There are a few reasons we are so tribal, and it's pretty fascinating. Number one, the more news you watch, the more likely you are to overestimate the other side's extremism. For example, if you watch a lot of MSNBC, you might think that all Republicans are misogynistic, racist assholes. If you watch a lot of Fox News, you might think all Democrats are socialist commies who hate puppies. We're listening to a lot of stuff, but what we're not listening to is one another. The second contributing factor, I think, is education. The specifics are surprising. Republicans without a college degree are more likely to pigeonhole and prejudge Democrats than Republicans with bachelor's degrees or higher. 
However, Democrats with college degrees are more likely to prejudge Republicans and make assumptions about what kind of person they are. Further, the bias increases with the amount of education they have. So, if you're a Democrat with a doctorate degree, you are statistically as likely to judge perfect strangers as a completely uneducated Republican. What we are all doing is making assumptions about people's character based on the colors of their jersey. It's like hating a person merely because they play for a particular football team. It's ridiculous. We wouldn't do that. That's just dumb. What we must find a way to do is to peel off these labels and climb out from under the wreckage and rubble of the last four or five years and realize that everybody is probably just doing the best they can. Everyone comes to the table with what they've got. And maybe if we could just all give each other a bit of grace, a little bit of forgiveness, and a little room to turn around, we would be less anxious and less angry. What I'm saying is we need to build bridges, not walls. We don't need to be calling each other Nazis and fascists and commies and dumb and elitists. I, I do think it is time to build those bridges. And maybe instead of building walls, tear down those walls. So that leads to the question of how do we think we can tear down those walls and build those bridges? Well, maybe, just maybe, we have to make kindness the norm, not the exception. We spend so much time and energy focusing on the negatives that affect us. When a moment of kindness does appear, it's as if a fog has been lifted just for a moment. It's really lovely. It makes us feel good. We smile, but then the fog rolls back in and we go back to the norm of our daily lives. We don't put in the effort to truly appreciate and reflect on those moments. So what is your norm where do those moments appear in your day and how frequent are they? My guess is that many of us will have a hard time answering that question because we don't register those experiences when they happen. They are simply short passing moments of delight. But what if we started being intentional about not only noticing and absorbing them when they happen to us, but creating those moments for others? What if we made it a point to go slightly outside of our comfort zone at least once a day to make someone smile? To share a compliment with a coworker or a friend. To reach out to a family member we haven't spoken to in a while. What if we stopped thinking about them as random acts of kindness and started thinking about them as intentional acts of kindness? There are things we do every single day with intention. We don't even think about them, really. We wake up, take a shower, brush our teeth, get dressed, drive to work or school. All parts of our invisible routine. What if we added a moment of kindness to our invisible routine? What if we woke up and as we turned the alarm off, we immediately sent an uplifting text message to a friend? Or during the morning commute, what if we let that guy merge into traffic with a wave and a smile instead of feeling upset or slighted and maybe flip him the bird? I invite you to look for ways to make kindness the norm in your daily life. Today is a great day to begin building a new routine, which means including intentional moments of kindness, laughter, and delight. It also means taking a moment to enjoy and recognize when those things are happening. Kindness starts with one, one smile, one compliment, one cup of coffee, one beer, one conversation. Let's lift the fog and make kindness the norm. We'll be right back after this short break. 
The law firm of Becker and Lindauer represent victims all over the state of Florida. All too often, insurance companies try to convince injured motorists, passengers, pedestrians, and other injured claimants to accept less than their case is worth. Whether it be a car crash, a trucking accident, a motorcycle wreck, a bicycle accident, or an injured pedestrian, it is imperative that you have legal representation to assist you. Becker and Lindauer are dedicated to putting their decades of legal experience to work for you. With proven results, Becker and Lindauer is ready to fight for you. With 45 years of combined experience in personal injury law, the team of Dave and Danielle are highly qualified and ready to help you. Call today for a free consultation, 941-567-6728. Again, area code 941-567-6728. Or visit Becker and Lindauer online at the website in the show notes. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. There's a fellow by the name of Fred Craddock, and he was a preacher and then a teacher of preachers. He was born and raised in rural Tennessee, and his contributions to the field of preaching are just incalculable. At the heart of his teaching was a desire to bring the congregation into the sermon rather than uh, attempting to dump knowledge into the minds of the congregation. And at the end of the day, Craddock was a great storyteller, and his stories always pointed to the story that we call the gospel. Here's one of those stories. He said, my mother took us to church and Sunday school. My father didn't go. He complained about the church. Sometimes the preacher would call and my father would say, I know what the church wants. It doesn't care about me. They just want another pledge, another name to add to the role. That's what he always said. Sometimes we'd have a revival. The pastor would bring the evangelist and tell him to go after my father, and he would just say the same thing. The church doesn't care about me. They just want another name and another pledge. I guess I heard it a thousand times until I didn't. He was in the veteran's hospital, down to 73 pounds. They'd taken out his throat, put in a metal tube, and the x-rays burned him to pieces. I flew in to see him. He couldn't speak, couldn't eat. I looked around the room. Plants and flowers were covering every available surface. There was a stack of cards 20 inches high next to the bed, and even the tray that was supposed to hold the food he couldn't eat was dominated by flowers. And every single one of those things were from people from the church. My father saw me read a card. He could not speak, so he took a Kleenex box and wrote on the side of it a line from Shakespeare. If he had not written this line, I would not tell you this story. He wrote, In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. I said, What is your story, Daddy? And he wrote, I was wrong. Church is and can be a lot of things. It can, of course, get caught up in the whole thing, the mech mechanisms of the world, if you will, and start to use the methods of the world to achieve its ends. Stewardship drives can get caught up in dollars and cents rather than bodies and souls. New membership classes can get caught up in filling the pews rather than transforming hearts. Even food programs can get caught up in making a good impression on the community rather than treating those who receive the food with dignity, love, and respect. And yet, the church, even at her worst, 
exists for others. We are a community of people who seek to live out a commitment to loving God and our neighbors. We receive the good news in order to become good news ourselves. It might not seem like much, but a well-timed card or a phone call out of the blue or even a hastily put-together email can be the difference that makes all the difference in the world. Hear the good news. Christ has a knack of taking the ordinary and making them extraordinary. Things like water and bread and wine. And yes, even us. Thanks be to God. Here in a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. And for whatever reason, the Christmas season seems to start earlier and earlier each year. And while part of me loves Advent and the Christmas season, it's sad to see one of the most sacred holidays on the Christian calendar get overtaken by commercialism. And many Christians share a strong desire to protect the holiness of Christmas, yet struggled with what really to do. If you find yourself like me longing for a less commercialized version of Christmas, then we might want to try an experiment for ourselves. Now be warned, purging commercialism from your Christmas might be harder than you think. Here are five radical ways to purge commercialism from Christmas. Number one, stop asking your kids what they want for Christmas. From the moment my kids were able to speak, every well-intentioned person they spoke to in the months leading up to Christmas asked them, what do you want for Christmas? Over the course of a child's life, they'll hear this question countless times, helping to frame their expectations for Christmas as a time to receive, not a time to give. Now, I realize that we all hate to disappoint our kids, if little Johnny tells us he really, really, really wants an overpriced Super Mega 2000, then some way, somehow, a Super Mega 2000 must find its way under the tree. But too many gifts are bought more out of obligation than a genuine desire to give your child that particular gift. A better question to ask your kids would be, what do you want to give for Christmas? With that simple change, the focus is moved off of self and onto others. It gives them a practical opportunity to apply the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Naturally, this will make your gift-giving job harder, but it will also make it more personal. Your gift will be driven by what you know about the person and what you think that person might enjoy. It might even force you to get to know them a little better. Number two, ditch the Christmas list. They create expectations. They lead us to focus on what we want. These expectations often cause a great deal of stress. One simple way to relieve the pressure is to eliminate the expectations. Give your loved ones the freedom to express their love for you in whatever way they see fit. They may not choose what you would expect, but remember, it is the thought that counts. Number three, forget Santa, or at least downplay his role. I know, I know, I'm hitting on a touchy subject here. Santa represents the fun, magic, and childlike wonder of Christmas to millions. And what harm can come from adding a little Santa fun? Well, somewhere along the line, Christmas was hijacked by commercialism. And while we can't blame Santa for all of it, he's not completely innocent here either. For all the good that he did, the story of Santa taught many of us to focus on receiving. It teaches us that the impossible, way-too-expensive gift will somehow magically appear under the tree. Once we grew up and learned that 
Santa wasn't real, the childlike wonder of Christmas became elusive. Increasingly, Christmas became a holiday for the kids. If you want to take the focus off of getting, then you'll need to find ways of downplaying the role of Santa. If Santa is already deeply ingrained into your traditions, you can start by putting your name on the big gift and letting Santa take credit for one of the smaller ones. Eventually, relegate his gift to a simple stocking stuffer. Over time, the magic of Santa and his gift is replaced by appreciation for the real giver, you. Your kids will come to know that you are the one who knows them, loves them, and sacrifices for them, not Santa. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Number four, focus on the real gift. Christmas is not primarily about the presents we give each other. It's not even primarily about family, food, and friends, although we hear those pious platitudes all the time. While all of these are welcome additions to the Christmas celebration, at its core, Christmas is about Jesus. The whole reason we celebrate Christmas is to commemorate the gift that was given to mankind when Jesus was born. Many of us go through the tradition of Christmas each year without paying attention to this most important gift. We know in our heads that Christmas is about Jesus' birthday, but it doesn't go further than that with us. It is as if God gave us a Christmas gift that we have refused to open. Have you ever unwrapped the gift offered through Jesus? Jesus didn't come to save the world. He came for you. Even if you were the only person on earth, he still would have come. And as we read John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And if you haven't opened that gift yet, there's no better time than right now. For those of you who have opened this gift and accepted Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, use the Christmas season as a reminder and celebration of what he has done. And maybe gather together as a family and create that natural special moment to read the Christmas story together. And the fifth radical way to purge commercialism from Christmas is simply to invite Jesus to the party. Focusing on the real gift at Christmas can be more difficult when the extended family meets. It's often all we can do to gather our motley crew and have it in peacefully. Look for ways to help the family focus on something beyond the gift giving. Let his love, peace, and joy shine through you. When you do, people see the real meaning of Christmas. And following these five guidelines will make it, I believe, much easier to keep the focus on Christ. He's no longer simply an afterthought, but the very heart of the celebration. Thank you so much for listening today. I know that your time is valuable and precious, and I truly appreciate you spending it with me. I want to thank you for the gift and privilege of your time today. If you get a chance to subscribe, I would be grateful for that too. And here is a last piece of advice. If you believe in goodness and if you value the approval of God, fix your minds on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and praiseworthy. Thanks again for listening to Soul Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jerry Wicker. Have an amazing week. I'll talk to you next time. Grace, peace, cheers. 
Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Soul Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production. <laughs>